0: Thanks, guys. What a great reminder of what the Lord does for us and how he encourages us. Take your Bible and turn with me to Revelation chapter 13. And as we're continuing on in our series through the book of Revelation, calling it Get Ready. And I think John's purpose in receiving this revelation and his purpose in giving us this revelation is to prepare us for the end. And so this morning we're going to be looking at Revelation 13, looking at the two beasts. And I don't know about you, but as I watch the news and as I kind of pay attention to what's happening in, in culture today, it seems like that we're moving closer and closer. Obviously, we know it's true. We're moving closer and closer to the end. In fact, I guess in reality, every day is a day closer. But just culturally, it seems like we may be there soon. And I um, found myself this week longing for the return of Jesus and hoping and wishing that I was a pre-tribulational type of guy so that we could kind of uh, get on board the Jesus train and, and, and get out of town before the real chaos and tribulation begins to happen. And then I was quickly reminded that I'm not a pre-tribulation type of person. And if you've been paying attention through this series at all, you know that I believe the church goes through the tribulation and uh, will face fiery trials like we've never seen before, never experienced before. I believe there's a word encouragement out of the book of Revelation in chapter 13 specifically that even though we want to escape the, 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 the ordeal and the, and the trials and the difficulties, what we're seeing and will continue to see in this book is that God's grace is sufficient. He can and will sustain His church through whatever tribulation they face. And so that's an encouragement to me today as I watch and look at things that are happening in the news and how chaotic they are and how awful they are and how evil they are. Uh, I'm grateful for the Lord's grace and that it is sufficient. And Paul was reminded of that in his own life there in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, that God's grace was always sufficient for him even in his most difficult of trials. And so look with me in Revelation chapter 13. Let's read this chapter and what I want to do this morning Is I want to come back and I want to unpack what's happening here with these two beasts, how they're affecting the church, and then I want to give you three things that hopefully you can take home and um, um, make applicable in your own lives. Look what John says in Revelation chapter 1, chapter 13, verse 1. Sorry. He says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on his horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? "'Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. "'If anyone has an ear, let him hear. "'If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. "'If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword must he be slain. "'Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. "'Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. "'It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon.' And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast For it is the number of a man, and his number is 666, the dreaded numbers that no one dares put in their own. You like no one wants a phone number that has the last digits of 666, right? Just everybody's scared of that number. And so let's unpack what John is telling us here in this chapter. As we know, a couple weeks ago when I was last with you in chapter 12, we looked at that highly imaginative, maybe even mythological type of picture of what's happening behind the curtain. We talked about the war behind the curtain that, that God and Satan are battling, have been battling, and will continue to battle into the very last day. This war, as we know, has its counterpart. It's played out in history. It's this cosmic war that's happening between demonic evil and the church. God and Satan are battling, and it spills over into a war against the church. And so chapter 13 here now is continuing this interlude that we've seen uh, between the seven trumpets and the seven bowls of wrath, which will take place in chapter 16. And so the seventh trumpet, as we saw a few weeks ago, It's going to bring history to the last days of the age. It's going to be the mystery of God being fulfilled both in salvation and in judgment. And so salvation history is coming to an end in the last days as the people of God are fully and finally saved and judgment is poured out against apostate humanity and the rebellious angels, which would be Satan and all his minions. All of that's going to come to fulfillment. Therefore, this time of the end is characterized by two outstanding features. Let me share them with you. The first can be described as the outpouring of divine judgment. This is going to include those seven bowls that we will see. It's also going to include judgment against the rebellious civilization referred to as Babylon in the Revelation. And then the second aspect is going to be the final persecution of the church. This is the part of Christianity that we really don't want to pay attention to. This is the part of Christianity that we don't want to hear about. We want, when we follow Jesus, everything to be easy, right? We wish that was the case. In fact, some people even preach that. There's a prosperity gospel out there that says if you love Jesus and you give X amount of dollars or you do certain things, that everything is hunky-dory. But I've told you before, if I read my Bible correctly, that is not what I'm seeing. Uh, in fact, what I'm seeing is the exact opposite. If, if that is true, if prosperity gospel that is being preached today is true, then God needs to apologize to Job and a whole lot of people from Genesis to where we are today. The truth is, Christian life is hard, and the Christian life is only going to get harder. So the vision of chapter 12 we saw ended with the dragon waging war against the woman And when he fails to destroy her, the woman being, speaking of the ideal church, the ideal people of God, he can't conquer the church, he can't conquer the ideal people of God, so he leaves there and makes war against her offspring, those who would put their faith in the gospel. And so that's what's happening. He's standing on the sea, or the sand of the sea, the edge of the seashore. And now chapter 13 begins, and we see this beast rising up out of the sea. John has already warned us of, of this beast in chapter 11 and that he is one who's going to rise from the abyss to make war against the church. John describes it in verse 1 here as having seven heads and ten horns. Now, we've seen this description already. It's the same description that he gave to the dragon in chapter 12. So, we see here a close parallel between the dragon and the beast. And then we're going to see that the dragon actually gives power and authority and, and dominion to the beast. He's going to carry out the wishes and the mandates of the dragon. <clears throat> so his authority parallels that of the dragon. In other words, the beast is uh, he, he's given over or he's under the authority, I should say, to the dragon or Satan. So we see here a close unity between the two the beast has the 10 horns and then on these 10 horns something different he says that he has 10 diadems or 10 crowns on the horns and so what we're seeing here in this this imagery is that the beast is going to have the authority of the dragon and he's the military arm that's going to enforce the dragon's rule his Horns represent military power, and so the diadems there speak of that authority, that dominion through military conquest. <clears throat> uh, we see also in this chapter a counterfeit of the unholy Trinity: the beast, the first beast, the second beast. The first beast we can classify as the Antichrist, as John describes him in his epistles. First uh, John and Second John speaks of him being the Antichrist, and then he's also spoken of as the false prophet. Um, or the second beast is described as the false prophet. So those are a picture or a, uh, a description of another trinity, not Father, Son, and Spirit, but now dragon, antichrist, and false prophet. And so he's seizing the roles played by God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. You know this, but I'm going to remind you of it anyway. But the devil creates nothing, Right? The devil only copies what God has created and then perverts it, right? The devil throws pleasure in our face, but he's not the author and the creator of pleasure. God is the creator of pleasure. I mean, God told Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Here, eat, enjoy everything that I've created. It is here for you, for your enjoyment, for your pleasure. Our God is a pleasure-seeking, or not a pleasure-seeking, but a pleasure-giving God, but he gives us parameters by which to enjoy that pleasure. The devil comes, he takes the parameters down and says, Here, go enjoy, and he perverts all that God's created for our good and for our blessing. He's not a creator, he's a perverter. And here he takes the Trinity and he perverts it and creates his an unholy Trinity. Uh, he goes on and talks about how he is um, described. He describes him in verse 2 as a leopard. He says he has feet like a bear, a mouth. Like a lion's mouth. Now, as we look at this description, you think, how in the world would this beast actually look? He has the the appearance of a leopard and a bear and a lion. We should not read this apocalyptic language, these symbols here, as something to be taken individually. Or I should say, let me tell you, I said that opposite. We shouldn't take it as a whole. We should understand it individually. So we don't see a, a beast that has these all these features in one thing. We, he's, he's speaking in language that would lead us to believe and to see this as, as a creature who is horrifying and, and ugly and terrible and the embodiment of all that is evil. And so this is a completely hideous, horrifying creature. That's what he's Laying out before us with this highly symbolic apocalyptic type of description, and then in verse three talks about how he. Uh, verse two he talks about how he's given him power and his throne and great authority, and so I've mentioned that he now is the Antichrist. He is the one who has the power to mimic that of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see that played out even further in this chapter as he describes people worshiping him and bowing before him, even having this mortal wound that has been healed. In us, in, in other words, this beast was slain, and we're going to see it further played out in chapter 17. He was slain with a sword. He becomes this eighth kingdom, I guess. He's slain with the sword and comes back to life. And because of this great miracle, the peoples of the world will fall into worship him. They will fall prey to his miraculous spectacle. So there's going to be a diversion of worship. Satan is always working to divert the worship due only to God and divert it to himself. That's what the devil's always working to do. That's what he wants to do in here. That's what he wants to do in our lives. He's always seeking to divert worship away from the Lord and to divert it to himself. And so, at the time of the Antichrist, in the time of chapter 13 of the Revelation, whenever that is into the future, that is a time for the struggles of the souls of men. That's what the enemy is doing. There's a war being waged behind the curtain in the spiritual realm for the souls of men. It's going to happen then, but it's also happening today. It's happening today in the hearts of every single person. There's a war taking place as Satan is seeking to wage war against God in the economy of men or in the context of the hearts of men, leading them away from the Lord. Verse 5, he goes on to further describe this beast, and he tells us that he is a blasphemer. Now, John is not here saying that this beast in this particular verse is demeaning God, but that's going to happen. We're going to see it in verse 6. What John is telling us is that this beast is placing himself in the position of God. He's deifying himself, and that's blasphemy. I think sometimes we hear the word blasphemy and we think of somebody using a curse word in connection with the name of God. This, Yes, that is blasphemy, but first and foremost, blasphemy is any time anyone, any creature, anything begins to put themselves in the place that only God deserves to reside. When we put ourselves in the place of God, that is blasphemy. But he goes on in verse 6, and he, he does demean God. He does demean the dwelling of God and those who are in heaven. So he speaks these blasphemous words against God, the dwelling of God, and the people of God. The blas- blasphemy continues as the beast begins to war against the church and conquer it in verse 7. Look what he says. It was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. There's encouragement there because we see that God was still in control. It was allowed for him to do this. God allows the church to do this. Now, I don't fully understand why the Lord does that, why the Lord allows the church to be persecuted and killed and and tortured, but he does. It's for his glory. It's for the good of his people. And in his sovereignty and grace, it's a part of his plan. We don't want to push against that, but we want to rest there in his uh, faithfulness, in his goodness, and in his sustaining grace. But that's what's going to happen. He's going to war against the saints, and he will conquer them. That's an interesting word. I didn't mention this in the first service. But when we hear that the church is going to be conquered, what does that look like? Here's what I know. Here's what I'm pretty confident. Here's what I am confident. Let me set it that way. When it says the church is going to be conquered, it doesn't mean that the church is going to apostatize themselves. In other words, they're not going to turn from the faith, right? Conquering means that they're going to be killed that they're going to be enslaved in some form or fashion, but the church will always remain the people of God. They will never turn their backs upon the Lord Jesus Christ. They will continue to hold firm to their faith. They're going to be like Polycarp, who I've used for illustrations a couple times through this series. The bishop of uh, of, uh, Smyrna in the 156 AD, I believe, when he's standing there with the threat of his life, going to be burned at the stake, he never once wavered in his commitment to Jesus. That's what the church is going to be like during this tribulational time when the Antichrist, the first beast, is waging war against the church. They're going to stand strong and firm in the faith. Many will be executed, if not most will be executed, but the rest will be put in jail, some sort of enslavement. They will suffer greatly at the hands of the Antichrist. The war against the church will be severe. On top of that, he's going to have authority over all the peoples of the world. Every people, tribe, language, and nation will worship him, verse 8 tells us. All of those who are not, whose names are not written in the book of life. Verse 11, we see that the second beast begins to rise. He comes up from the earth. He has two horns like a lamb. He speaks like a dragon. He's imaging Jesus. He's, he's going to be this personification of religion where the first beast, the Antichrist, is a civil military type of authority. The second beast or the false prophet is going to be a religious power who gives credence and, and sway allegiance back to the civil power. So the religious arm of this movement is going to help enthrone and solidify the authority and the power and the influence of the Antichrist over the peoples of the world. Now, there's never been a, a person in all of history, no human power outside of the Lord Jesus Christ to influence the whole world, and even Jesus Himself has not influenced the whole world at the same time. Right? Jesus, when He came, He came as a suffering servant. He came as one who was meek and mild to give His life as a ransom for all. He didn't come as a military power to unite all of the nations in war against some other unity. So there's never been a person to ever do that, but the Antichrist will do that, and he will do that largely through the influence and the support of the false prophet who does all of these miraculous things that we see here in the latter half of chapter 13. Look what he says that he's going to be able to do. Verse 14, By the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast. So the signs that he's going to do, he says earlier, is that he's going to call fire down from heaven. He's going to do miracles much like Elijah did when he called fire down from heaven and consumed that offering. He's going to sway people with these miraculous things, even so much so that he's going to, because of the influence he gets, He's going to have people create an image. Maybe it's a statue that's going to look like the Antichrist, and he's going to give life to this statue so that it speaks, and even so much so that the statue has authority itself so that you don't bow down and worship the image, the statue, then you will be put to death for that rebellion. This is going to be a mighty thing that's going to draw the hearts and minds of the people away from the Lord. If they were to ever respond to the gospel, they're going to be drawn away from it to the Antichrist as a result of the false prophet. And then he tells us that this is going to be uh, one who also gives a mark to those people who follow the Antichrist. The mark's going to be, in, I guess, a number, 666. It's going to look some way. Now, this number, I said told the first service, uh, there's been a lot of discussion for the last two millennia about what this number is. People have tried to figure it out. There's all kinds of different um, Ways that you can go about it in the old languages, they didn't have numbers like we do today, and so uh, each letter of the alphabet would be given a certain number. So people have taken those different calculations and tried to figure out different people's names and is it this emperor of Rome or this emperor of Rome, and whatever. We don't know what it is, in fact, it's not important that we know because. Today, we don't know it, but in the end time, when this is taking place, I believe it will be evident to all people what this mark is, what it looks like, what it refers to. And so, also, I don't believe we need to fear whether or not we're going to fall into taking this number. I mean, it tells us here, those who have the number will be those who follow the Antichrist, which means you're not in Christ, you follow the Antichrist. But for us as believers... Revelation 7 already told us that the believers present during that time already have the seal of God upon them. They already bear the mark of God, so we don't need to worry about falling into um, taking the mark of the beast ourselves. Sometimes people will say, well, it's, the, it's a microchip. You know, we can put chips in our dogs. I guess you put it in their neck. I don't know. I've never had a dog with a chip in their Maybe it's the ear. I don't know where they tag them. But you can put a microchip in an animal. I guess you could do it even in a human being. And so you can be tracked. I think there will be a day maybe down the future where you can scan your wrist with some sort of microchip. I mean, I go into the Y, Teresa, and I use my phone to, to, to sign in. Or oh, Not my phone. Well, I use my phone too, but I use my watch. You know, I can do that kind of stuff. So there's all kinds of technology that, that allows us to do those sorts of things. So a lot of people will think that's the mark of the beast. It may or may not be in the future, but right now there's no reason to be alarmed by that because here's the reason. If you're in a relationship with Jesus Christ, you are already sealed with the Holy Spirit. You cannot lose your salvation, which means you cannot ignorantly take on something that you don't understand and lose your salvation. I believe believers will be able to recognize the mark, whatever that mark is, when the time comes, and know to reject it. That's the point I'm trying to make here. I've heard people over the years really get upset about that. They're, they're scared, literally scared that they're going to mistakenly take that mark upon their body, either their hand or their forehead, and somehow miss heaven. That cannot happen if you're in relationship with Jesus Christ. And so John's purpose in giving us these descriptions is not to give us a description of what the mark is, but it, instead to give us a description of the suffering that's brought on by the mark. And so the whole point, I believe, of what we're seeing in chapter 13 is this: God's sovereignty will sustain us through whatever trial we're gonna face in the future. Right? And it's it's sufficient today for whatever trials we're facing. God's grace is sufficient for the difficulties that we face in life. And so let's now give some application. I, I told our tech guys this morning when I got here about 8 or so, I was like, you know what? Revelation 13, and I said, this is going to sound sacrilegious. It's a chapter that it's really hard to get excited about because you're like, Whoo! the church is going to suffer. They're going to go through hell. It's going to be exciting. I mean, how, how can you preach that and be, be really excited about it? But I told him, I was like, but you can be excited because God's going to sustain us through it all. God is always good. And so that's what I hope, to, hope for you to see during this time. This is an awful period of human history as the Antichrist is literally unleashing hell upon humanity. Most Christians will lose their lives if they haven't already lost their lives at this point. The rest will be enslaved or persecuted or in, in, in prison. It will be horrible for the believers of Jesus during these days, but through it all, they will hold fast to their faith. They will claim Jesus. They will continue to preach the gospel. In fact, as we move into chapter 14, we're going to see that God himself is proclaiming the gospel and, and it's continuing to be spread even as people reject it. So let me give you three things in light of all of that. First of all, I want you to see this. The Antichrist is worshipped during this period, not because of his moral greatness, but the awesome power of his might. In the end, when the Antichrist and false prophet are ruling over the nations and the peoples of the world, their authority will be seated in the Antichrist's seemingly sovereign might. The people of the world will look at the authority and power of the Antichrist and his power his sidekick, and they will think to themselves, I can't do anything but give my allegiance. I am completely and utterly conquered. They, I don't believe everyone will love the Antichrist. Now, I, I believe he'll probably be charismatic. I mean, any leader that's going to sway influence or have influence over people is charismatic. They're going to have the ability, he's going to have or she's going to have the ability to influence and and redirect people's priorities and, and desires and, and rally the nations around one banner. No one has been able to do that, but he or she will. But it doesn't mean everybody's going to love this character. However, they're going to look at the power of this person and the authority of this person and the hostility of this person. And they're going to feel like they can do nothing but surrender. So they will follow this person because of the power and the might. I mean, the, the power is going to be awesome. Uh, he will sway the nations. His authority, though, is given to him or to her by the Lord. So that leads us to a second thing that I want you to see. The earth dwellers are deceived by the Antichrist, not because of his spiritual greatness, but by their own rejection of God. See, the Antichrist parodies or parallels what's happening with with the death and the resurrection of, of Jesus. Uh, and so he's going to use this resurrection to gain control of the peoples of the world. They're going to see what's happening with the Antichrist being resurrected and be awed by it. Just like we, if we were to see someone resurrected from the dead, which is something that does not happen um, very often. It's only happened a, 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 short, a small amount of times throughout history. But it's going to awe them. And so they're going to be drawn to the, the Antichrist But again, it's not just because he does this great spiritual thing. Something else is at work here. The reason they're drawn to the lie versus the truth is because they've rejected God. That's what happens. When we reject the truth, we believe the lie. In Romans chapter 1, Paul gives it, he kind of spells this out. He, He describes what this looks like. Those who reject the truth, the truth of God, He gives them over to what they really want. See, when we reject God, we're saying, we don't want you, God. I don't want your authority over my life. I don't want your power over my life. I don't want your influence over my life. I don't want anything you have to say dictating or mandating how I want to live my life. So when we say we don't want God, we're saying we don't want truth. And so when we say that, we're saying, I want a lie. I want the counterfeit. I want what's not going to give me what is true and life-giving. And so what does the Lord do? He gives us or He gives people what they want. He gives them over to their sin. And so in the end times, the earth dwellers, which is a description Revelation uses for those who are not redeemed, the earth dwellers are simply going to follow the Antichrist because they've rejected God. That's what it's all about. God gives sinners over to their sin. Sin. It's not because he does all of these wonderful things, even though he's going to do wonderful things. It boils down to the people have rejected the Lord. And over and over and over again throughout the Revelation, we have seen the gospel being proclaimed. The two witnesses that we looked at in chapter 11 proclaimed the gospel. That's a picture of the church proclaiming the gospel, even though there will be two people. Over and over again, the gospel has been proclaimed. The woes have proclaimed. Remember the, the eagle that flew around before one of the, the, the woes that was mentioned in the trumpets. The angel, the angel, or I guess it's an angel, it's a creature, an eagle flying around, is warning the people of a judgment that is coming. That, in essence, is part of the gospel, that your sin, your rebellion against God, is going to wreak havoc upon your life. So repent, turn trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the people of God will, I should say, the people of the earth will continue to reject God and in turn embrace the Antichrist. And this brings us to a final reality. There are no neutralities in this war. Not to belong to Christ is to belong to the beast. This image that the false prophet's going to have the people create that's an image of the beast is going to have authority that if you don't worship the image or if you don't worship the beast, you will be put to death. If you don't take the mark on your life, you're going to be unable to buy and sell. In other words, you're going to be unable, unable to live a normal life. We've already seen in chapter 7 that God sealed his followers, as I mentioned, and so they're sealed with the mark of God. Likewise, the beast knows the people who follow him. So in Revelation, here's what we're seeing. I've I've mentioned it already in these first 12 chapters. Two kinds of people in the book of Revelation. Really, there's two kinds of people in all the Bible, the redeemed and the unredeemed, the forgiven and those who are still condemned with their sin, those who are in Christ, those who are in the world or in Satan there's only two kinds of people. There's, this only, there's only this dichotomy here. There's not in Revelation those who have an education. And those who don't. There's, there's not the well, you've got the educated and the uneducated and the wealthy and the not wealthy, or the people who lived on this side of the tracks, or the semi religious people, or there's the Baptists and the Catholics and, and the Presbyterians, and you got some Muslims. There's none of that in Revelation. There's only those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. That leads us to this reality that when you come to life, in all of life, and especially during this time, there is no concept of riding the fence. You cannot be neutral when it comes to spiritual matters. You either say yes to Jesus, which is in essence saying no to Satan, or you say yes to Satan, which is in essence saying no to Christ. There's no neutrality. So we're left with the question, what do we do with Jesus? What do we do with Jesus? That's what We have to answer. That's the question we have to answer every single time we meet as a church and we listen to the word of God. Will we believe what God's word says? What are we going to do with Jesus? What are we going to do with the gospel? What are we going to do with God's word? Do we believe it and heed it or do we reject it? Which kingdom are we going to follow? Which master are we going to serve? sin in self, which is Satan, or holiness and righteousness, which is Christ. There is no neutrality during the end times. There's only these two kinds of people, the lost and the redeemed. For us as Christians, though, most of us in this room, I would say, are followers of Jesus. Chapter 13 gives us some hope as well. See, in Christ... We are secure. We have the mark of the Lord upon our lives. And so this mark, this assurance enables us to endure with faith that Jesus will see us through the tribulation. He's never going to leave us or forsake us. One of the great promises of the Bible is that the Lord does not leave or forsake his people. He's always with us. You read through the Old Testament, you see it over and over and over again. I was reading uh, one of the little story Bibles that my daughters have, and I was reading it to Hannah the other night. And it was the story of Moses and the Red Sea. So it tells the story of the ten plagues and how God did all those things. And, it, it, you know, how Kids Story Bibles is. Uh, It's so illustrative that I, I just, I loved how it presented everything. But it told the story of how, here's Israel standing on the banks of the Red Sea. And you know the story. And it looks like everything is against them. You've got the Red Sea to their backs. You've got Pharaoh and what left of what? Part of the army he has left coming against them, and they have no weapons, no way to to fight, nowhere to flee. And all of a sudden, the Lord steps in and splits the Red Sea, allows them to go through on dry ground, and then kills all the enemies with the water. That's a good place to say, "Amen." That's a good story. God is faithful. The people of God needed to hear that story. They needed to see that faithfulness. And over and over again, the people of God needed to hear that story told by Moses and those who came after him because we needed to be reminded day in and day out that God is faithful. No matter how difficult life may be, no matter how chaotic society may be, no matter how evil our culture may become, God is faithful and he will sustain his people through it all. So we can, with our voices, proclaim the gospel. We can, with our lives, live out the gospel. We can seek to serve the Lord, despite what everything is saying against that in our culture. God's grace enables us to live the gospel. So what is the gospel? In conclusion this, this morning, we talk about it in three, three ways. First of all, we talk about good news. You know, the, gospel is, the good news of the gospel is that God loves us. He cares for us, and you know this, right? He created you for himself. He created you with purpose. He created you with a wonderful, perfect design so that you could relate to him in a way that no other creature can. Uh, I'm troubled by Christians at times, especially in a... In, in a time of death and you go to a funeral and you stand around and you talk to some people and, or, or you do what I do when I'm at a funeral, I'm usually listening as much as I can, especially if I'm doing the funeral because I'm trying to hear what people say and pick up a little story here and there. And, and I can use that to kind of add some other, another level of, of ability to honor that particular individual. So I'm listening a lot. And a lot of times I'll hear something like this, well, God just needed another angel in heaven. No, he did not need another angel in heaven. First of all, by saying that, you're actually devaluing human life because we are a better and higher creature than the angels. They don't get to experience God on a level that we do in redemption. Think about what the Lord's done for us. He is so good to us. The good news is that he created us to be in relationship with him, to be in fellowship with him. The bad news, though, is... Sin has broken all of that, and brokenness is pervasive in our life, and it's all kinds of brokenness in our families, in our in our in our relationships, and in, in every aspect of our life. Brokenness has dominated. We try to fix our brokenness all the time. We try to take that God shaped hole that is that is this void within us, and we shove all kinds of things in that hole, thinking it's going to fix and fill, but it never does. It just creates a greater abscess there. The more we feel, the bigger that hole becomes until we look to Jesus and the God-shaped hole is filled with the one who we were created to enjoy forever. That's the best news. The best news of the gospel is that Jesus has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He died in our place as a ransom for our sins so that we could be forgiven and so that we could be in relationship with him. I know many of you have come to that point in your life. But some perhaps have not. In a moment, we're going to have a time of just response. We're going to sing a song, and uh, this is the later service, so we can go as long as we want, right? I don't have a meeting till noon, so uh, we got 35 minutes to respond. I'm kidding about that. but uh, Nick, if you want to come on and just play, we're going to sing in just a moment. Here's what I want you to do this morning. If you're a follower of Jesus, I, I just want you, I'm, and I'm praying in a moment, and we're singing, uh, just thank the Lord for his goodness in your life. Ask him to, to remind you of his sustaining grace in the midst of this chaotic culture that we're living in ask him to encourage you and to not lose faith it may seem like God is not in control but I want to just remind you he is absolutely in control of every single thing there's going to be a day when all of the mess and it's going to get worse than this right I mean people have been saying for 2,000 years it can't get any worse than this it's going to right it's going to But he can and he will sustain you every single step of the way. So continue to be faithful. Continue to share the gospel. Continue to live out the gospel. I mean, that's what people need to hear and to see. So ask God to help you do that. But This morning, if you're not in relationship with Jesus, I just want to encourage you in just a moment to say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I need your forgiveness. I need a relationship with you. Everything the pastor was talking about today, I need in my life. Help me to put my faith and trust in you, and I believe he will do that. So let's pray, and then we're going to stand and sing. Father, we thank you today for your goodness and grace. God, I thank you for this chapter that reminds us that no matter how difficult life may and will become, we serve a God who never stops loving us, who never stops fighting for us, and who will never forsake us. God, you will give us your sustaining grace. Lord, may that be an encouragement to all of us who are believers this morning that we can and we should live out our faith in a world that is continuing to be more and more hostile toward the things of God. Father, I pray for anyone in this room this morning who's not in relationship with Jesus, might be religious, religion is never enough. God, I pray they'd realize today that the greatest decision they need to make is to put their faith and trust in Jesus for forgiveness of sin. May they do that this morning in Jesus' name.